I'm Mischievous Marchinacchio, and I own every issue of Amazing Spider-Man and Amazing Fantasy 15, plus all of the Amazing Spider-Man annuals, a separate series I may note, so I don't think they count. And I'm Dapper Dan Gavazdan, and I own every issue of Amazing Spider-Man, including the annuals, separate series or not. I think in the spirit of collecting Amazing Spider-Man, it only makes sense to include the annuals, no matter your categorization techniques. So they count to me. But I will say, Mark, you do have the edge on me, because for me, Amazing Fantasy 15 still remains a fantasy. Welcome to the Amazing Spider-Talk, the show where two fans and collectors uncover the strange, fun, and fascinating history of the Spider-Man comic universe. Thanks for joining us for this review episode of The Amazing Spider Talk. If you want to swing along with us on our journey through Spidey's past, present, and future, as well as our preamble about what counts and doesn't, subscribe to Amazing Spider Talk on your favorite podcast app and leave us a review to help spread the word about our show. I wouldn't normally get into details about this, but Mark and longtime listeners will know that I'm like a real stickler for audio quality on this show. And so I just wanted to note, and and again, we won't get too much into my dental history, but I have recently gotten Invisalign. So if you hear slightly heavier on the S's from my part, I am getting used to having, you know, plastic trays in my mouth. You know, it's it's an audio show. Could I take them out? Yes. Does my uh, dentist say I shouldn't? Yes. So, you know, the dentist wins out. You know, I guess you can chalk this one up to how devoted I am to the show to sacrifice my dental health to spider talk. But, but, but just think that, Dan, but think that, that what you spent on your Invisalign could have went towards an Amazing Fantasy 15. Like it it could have. I, I, have, I have no Invisalign and I have a bit of a lisp anyway and my teeth are like all sorts of British crooked. But, you know, I have Amazing Fantasy 15. I'm just putting that out there. Anyway, continue with the show. <laughs> These are real what ifs, Mark. And um, I think the real what if there is what if my wife divorced me for making that alternate calculation? Speaking of devotion, this podcast exists because of the support of our Patreon members. If you want to receive early episodes, exclusive artwork, and keep this podcast going, and maybe even learn more about my dental records, you can go to AmazingSpiderTalk.com and consider joining our Patreon. Those dental records might be helpful if I ever murder someone. I don't know. Uh, We're going somewhere, Mark. But today on the show, Mark and I are going to be discussing Amazing Spider-Man Volume 6, Number 34, 
This issue is written by Zeb Wells. The cover artwork is by John Romita Jr., Scott Hanna, and Marcio Menez, and the interior artwork is by Patrick Gleason, with covers by Marcio Menez, and of course, letters by VC's Joe Caramagna. This issue was first released on September 20th, 2023. Mark, why don't you recap Amazing Spider-Man Volume 6, Number 34 for us? Okay, we start with Janice Lincoln and Randy Robertson at Harlem Hospital as Tombstone Lonnie Lincoln is on life support. Hey, remember this storyline? Pepperidge Farm remembers. Janice is all like, thanks but no thanks to Randy since he bailed on her after the whole attempted mass murder thing at the wedding. Tombstone starts to flatline and they realize that someone unplugged his ventilator and who would do such a thing? Sinister Spider-Man would. <laughs> Mary Jane is throwing popcorn around as Paul is casually rocking a man bun as if we all didn't hate this guy enough. <laughs> Norman sneaks up on them to warn them that they are likely in danger. What else is new? In what may end up being Norman's Oscar-winning performance, he tells the couple to avoid the bridge and take the tunnel. That brings us to Kraju. Buried in his casket, running out of air, and debating ending it all with the shotgun that Spider-Man so nicely left with him. Who's to say Peter has lost his heroism? Back to Paul and MJ's place, and Norman knows what's about to happen when he turns on the light in the house, and indeed, sinister Spider-Man is behind him, and Spidey is looking to beat on some mathematical man buns. Norman tells him this isn't like Peter, and Peter says, you're right, it's like you, Norman. Quick cut back to Kraju, still debating that shotgun, and then we cut back to Norman, who is about to get the snot beaten out of him by the sinister Spider-Man. Spider-Man is all of Spider-Man Twitter and screams at Norman, do you think I've forgotten what he's done to him his entire life? Spider-Man Twitter cheers on the beatdown until they realize that it's out of character for Spider-Man, so they send hate mail to the Spider-Office, but then they realize that Peter can't be friends with Norman either, so they're just screaming about everything. I mean, at least I imagine. I quit Twitter two months ago. Can you confirm that this is what's happening, Dan? It looks like I picked the wrong week to quit reading Spider-Man Twitter. Ah, uh, too bad. Anyway. Spidey has some pretty bloody fists, but the sins of Norman tell him to leave Osborne behind to attend to other business. That other business, of course, is getting revenge on Paul and MJ. We finally see the Queen Goblin again, and she's starting to feel remorse for everything she set into motion with Kraju. So now she wants to get in on some of the action. Back to Kraju, and the light is fading fast on him. He tries to rally by reminding himself that he's not his father, but then we cut over to Paul and MJ, and they're sitting in traffic in the Holland Tunnel, and truly, Norman's last diabolical act to Peter was telling these two to take the Holland Tunnel as the faster escape route. I mean, seriously. What's next? Take the Van Wick to get to the airport? And of course, out jumps Spider-Man Bat, and the Tim Burton theme is playing, but which one? You, dear right reader, can decide. <laughs> So now we're cutting back and forth and we're all over the place and we can't figure out what exactly is going on until the final panels where we see Queen Goblin confronting Spider-Man and Norman dragging Kraju out of the grave and we're done. Mark, as soon as I heard, read anything about the Highland Tunnel in this comic, I was like, we're going to get one of Mark's, you know, patented New Yorker, like, uh, you know, screeds about public transportation. But I was happy with myself uh, fitting in a Gen X reference this time. Mark, 
The previous issue of this comic was all about vibes, inverting Craven's last hunt and letting Patrick Gleason deliver the goods. But with Craven out of the way, this issue focuses more on the plot. Do you think it did the work of creating a compelling narrative and on its own right that allows its identity to evolve beyond the mere inversion of Craven's last hunt? Yes, this is this is a far more story driving the action uh, kind of a comic. I mean, I got to be honest, I, I did not like this comic as much. I think I was more into the vibes, frankly. I feel like, you know, the, the, the mood and tone that was being set in the last issue was was something that even as a as a callback to Craven's Last Hunt, it just it just felt kind of different even from a modern Spider-Man standpoint in terms of the kinds of stories we've been getting. Whereas if anything, I kind of felt like even though we don't typically get Spider-Man being this dark and, and, and sinister, as I kept referring to him, this felt more aligned with kind of the current Spider-Man where I almost feel like the envelope was being pushed too much, that, that it lacked nuance. It lacked subtlety in any way. Like it was just in your face, like, you know, from the, from, from the jump, from Jump Street. I mean, Spider-Man is pulling the plug on Tombstone, which is like, oh, okay. <laughs> like, and, 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 and he's looking to, you know, beat the crap out of Paul or worse, potentially. We, we, we don't actually see him get that far. And, and not that I feel like it's out of line with what this story has set up, but it was just like, like I said, it, 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 it lacked kind of, the grace and vibes of the last issue and and left me kind of like all right so i mean i kind of hope the conclusion kind of marries the two because i think we need to but if it's just another kind of plot heavy story i'm kind of like falling out of love with the story the way i kind of fell into it last time yeah i think this issue is not as playful as the previous issue was where like there was a sort of like you know predator prey set up to the previous issue that like had back and forth and surprises and Peter was kind of toying with his uh, prey. This one does not have that. He is more of just like on the full assault and therefore it lacks the kind of like lyricism, I think of the, the previous issue. But I do think, and I think you're right that this does read like a modern Spider-Man comic. Whereas that previous one, ha- you know, kind of felt like, something we get in the 80s or like a more evergreen tale. I think the previous issue was far better as a standalone comic, but I do think that this issue showcases a lot of the strengths of Wells' run, like when it has been strong. It does like a meaningful check-in on characters while finding a way to make them feel core to the ongoing story. I mean, we didn't need to check in on the Tombstone situation, and yet I felt like we got a meaningful check-in to the resolution to 31 that opened this comic and made it feel like those characters and MJ and Paul as well feel essential to the story that we're getting. And I think when Wells has been working well, that's what he does, I'm going to say really well. I think back to the issue where like MJ showed up at Oscorp, you know, or something like that, like making all these characters in Peter's life feel integral to both Peter and Spider-Man's life and that they're people that regularly interact with each other, even if it's just because Spider-Man is trying to kill them <laughs> in, the, in this case. You know, I, I like that it uh, continues to push the book forward into uncomfortable territory. 
this particular issue is interesting, as you noted, and it's funny that you noted this in your recap without talking to me about it, because it's exactly the kind of metatextual reading that I had of the book when I read it, which is like, Sinister Spider-Man, as we're calling him, is basically Spider-Man Twitter. He's like an aggressive force out to destroy all of the new changes that Wells has introduced during the run. You know, like, I'm going to undo this peace between Spider-Man and Tombstone. I'm going to kill Paul and I'm I'm going to reject a friendship with Norman, right? Because those are all things that like we would we uh, people critics of this run have said, "Oh, Peter would never do that." And here you're getting the kind of like raw Peter that has no empathy and and he's acting and it's like what we've been saying from the beginning is like, "Yeah, Peter would do all of these things because he is someone that's open to change and uh, open to other people changing and that's what makes him like a hero. And so like, I, I think in a meta textual way, it's really clever, but I think it's not all that meta either because of course, Peter would want to destroy Norman tombstone and Paul if his repressed feelings took over and the Paul thing made me laugh, you know, like, okay, we're going to spend a whole plot line of him trying to kill Paul. Like, Oh, great. Let's just all get on board the same train, you know? Yeah, uh, so I mean, t- talk about cutting the Gordian knot of this of this whole arc over the last uh, 34 issues. 34 issues? How, what issue are we up to? I forgot now. 34, <laughs> oh, yeah. 34 issues. It's like, this kill Paul. Like, it's just, he, he's, <laughs> he's Scott Evil. Just shoot him. Like, what are you doing? Like, <laughs> end, so, end your misery this way. <laughs> so I, I agree with you that, like, it doesn't have the, le- like, the, like, sometimes silent lyricism of the previous issue, the cleanliness of that issue. But I do think in regards to this run, it is doing a really interesting thing, which is using this, like, you know, a Peter free of repression, free of empathy, free of the lesson of Uncle Ben to push back on, like, all the changes that Wells has brought to the run. And, you know, simultaneously maybe silencing it'll never happen silencing spider-man twitter and i'm not even on there anymore i i legitimately haven't been on twitter except for to post stuff for our our show because i'm just sick of, of dealing with it but i actually think that this part of the this issue while not as good as the previous as a standalone is really showing me like what does wells want to do with this story in relationship to his run and the stories that have come before it. And I think in that regard, it's really interesting. Yeah, maybe a bit repetitive. Like we've seen the Spider-Man takes on attributes of his enemies a bunch of times by now. But I do think it really makes sense as a culmination of a year-long or a year-long plus story or even longer than that in regards to the Norman Osborn, like, you know, decinification of it all. I really appreciated the issue on that level as part of a run. I see what you're saying and I, I appreciate it from that level, but like, you know, the other the other part of my my screed in in the synopsis was that, you know, like even in trying to kind of be meta about it, it's it's still doing it in a way where I think, you know, critics or even people who are fans of this run would kind of take a step back and be like, yeah, but this this feels out of place too. Like you said, I mean, it's like, okay, well, what would Spider-Man do if all of his feelings were repressed in a way? And, 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 and you know, I, I or that, not if his feelings were repressed, but what, you know, if you let those feelings take over and I get that, but like, it's also just kind of like, yeah, but like, what kind of outrageous scenario would we be in where that would be the status quo? And that's kind of what we're what we're dealing with here. So it's like, 
you know, in, in, in either scenario, like you, you know, like we don't like Paul, not saying we, but you know, the, the critics don't like Paul and they're kind of like, ah, you know, I, I wish Paul would just die, but it's like, you know, I don't think anyone here thinks seeing Peter beat the living crap out of him and killing him off would be a satisfying thing for the character. You know what I mean? Like, it, no, it but I, like I, I don't think we're yeah. meant, I don't think we're meant to feel satisfied by it. It's supposed to make us feel icky. Like, you know, it's supposed to make us go like, wait, was I wrong about disliking Paul? You know, I think this book has disliked Paul from the beginning. Yeah. No, I understand that. But I'm just saying like, like they're, they're setting it up as this monkey monkey's paw scenario, I think to the critics, but it's also just like, yeah, but like, who says it needs to be a monkey's paw? You know what I mean? Like, why do, why do, why does the choice, I, I feel it's a straw man choice where being, where, where the readers are kind of being offered here, where it's like, yeah, we're acknowledging all the stuff you don't like. In this scenario, the only resolution to it is also going to be something you don't like. And it's like, okay, why don't you just give us something we like though? And I'm not saying this is me speaking. I'm just saying like taking this route could have, and I, I, I don't even want to say dangerous consequences because who cares? I mean, like, Fans are going to be fans, but I'm just like, yeah, I, there's a part of me that's like, I would almost prefer like, just like, I don't know, tell the story you want to tell. I don't know. <laughs> like, I mean, like, that, that's I mean, the thing is, I, I, I think he is telling the story he wants to tell. I think we were always meant to have complicated feelings about MJ and Paul and Norman and Peter teaming up with Tombstone. Like, I don't think we were meant to feel comfortable about that. And now it's putting us in a situation that's making us feel you know, like, oh, may, like, you know, like, I, am I getting what I wanted in another uncomfortable way? And I, I actually think that's really interesting. But I could see, yeah, it would, it's going to ruffle some feathers for sure. As a, as a story, I, I find it kind of interesting. I do think, but, but, but at the core of it, I do think it is very blunt. You know, like we, you can, uh, we can talk about the, uh, the scene I want to talk about first is this scene between Peter and Norman. And I think it's actually a really good example of what I'm talking about. Which is just the, a great scene between Peter and Norman that's set up when Norman turning a light on and Peter just appearing behind him in a really great visual from Gleason. And Peter like comes at Norman and says like, I'll finally get the chance to do what I should have done years ago, which is the moment from, you know, Amazing Spider-Man 122 that you talk about all the time is Peter is a chance to kill Norman, to take him out. And he relents at the last second and, you know, obviously Norman kills himself accidentally or, well, harms himself for 30 years. Uh, but it goes to Paris. But right, anyway, yeah, yeah. I mean, look, if I could harm myself and go to Paris, I'd take it. You know, I thought that was a really cool callback that like Peter has been holding on to that for all these years. And all it takes is quieting the better part of his mind to make that moment come back. But it's not subtle. You know, like he beats the crap out of Norman and there's blood going everywhere. And, you know, it's a very different approach to what he did with Craven. And I do feel like. And again, this gets down to maybe like the rules of the sins not being super clear, because if he's the goblin, if he's truly become the goblin, I feel like the goblin would go about it in a more smart and like torturous way than just running in there and beating the crap out of Norman Osborn or pulling the plug on Tombstone. And that's what was so appealing about the previous issue is the Craven thing was super clever. And this is just more blunt force. So like really, truly, that's my only knock against this issue is I feel like there were more clever ways of going about this. 
Yeah, if anything, I, 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 the, the, the villain that I kind of kept thinking of throughout Peter's actions was more, you know, granted not, not Marvel, but it was more the Joker to me. It just felt like Peter was kind of becoming this agent of chaos where he was just going to kind of, you know, go in and, like I said, pull the plug, beat the, you know, beat the living snot out of somebody, kind of stalk somebody, but like in a almost like uh, maniacal way. I mean, like you say, you see him smiling through, the mask at points, you know what I mean? Like it felt very Jokerish to me, you know, maybe with, with a little more brute force than I think we see from the Joker. Although, you know, maybe Jason Todd would disagree with that. I, I get it. Like, that's the thing. It's like, this is one of those things where like, I get it. And I think in the context of the comic, it was well done. Yet, I don't know if it resonated with me in a real way because it, it, it just felt... Yeah, I keep coming back to what I said early. It just felt so lacking of nuance and grace. And, you know, that lyricism, I mean, lyricism is such a great way to put it, too, where I'm just like, okay, like, like, I understand why we're doing this. But like, you know, like, like it doesn't (laughs) when when we're building a building, I know we got to like, you know, use a jackhammer to break up the foundation. It doesn't necessarily mean I want to like hear a jackhammer going for for 30 minutes, you know, like even though I want to see what the building looks like at the end. I don't know. It's just like there there are parts about this that I, I get why they did it and the choice they made it. But like at the same time as the reader, I don't know if like I am on board for it. Like if I found it as enjoyable to read, it, it, it just felt too like entrenched in this kind of sadism that we, we didn't get the last time, you know, like it wasn't as smart about it for lack of a better phrase. I also think that in terms of its like structure, the last issue had a really clear like triptych between characters that are fighting with their internal demons or their fear base level fears. And this has it too with the Craven check-ins and Norman gets a little bit of that too, but it's lacking. And, and so does the queen goblin, but it's lacking a sort of like strict adherence to that. And so it feels a little bit less strong of a like perspective. And I think maybe a stronger, like, like a uh, hook into that perspective would have, made this work more like because then spider-man gets to take the back seat and he's just like a you know jaws right he's the he's the shark that's showing up in all these places and we're truly with norman or whoever and i just feel like that voice was not quite as sharp in in this issue to kind of let me cast spider-man aside in that way um although i know we got some of spider-man's monologue in the in the previous issue but either way, I still really liked the Peter and Norman scene. The The suggestion of Peter that he's going to throw Paul off a bridge to see if MJ will, will catch him is really dark. And, I, you know, I, and I laughed at it in a twisted sort of way. You know, I kind of wish, I mean, that's a little, that's definitely on the nose, but I kind of wish like we did that instead of the brute force in the Holland Tunnel, but we may still get there. Uh, but any, anyway, uh, I, I do think, you know, we're comparing this to a book that we gave a rare A on our show, and I still think most of these scenes are very strong. You know, they're just not on the same level as one of the best issues we've read on this title while we've been reviewing the comic. Do we want to talk a little bit about what our friends in the Slack are saying about this comic and others? Yeah, sure, Mark. 
Okay, well, hundreds of listeners like you, and I mean mainly you, Dan, because I, 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 I've kind of gotten cold on the Slack again. I got to get back into it. Anyway, you hang out in our community of Spider-Man fans on the Slack. The amazing Spider-Slack community is absolutely free to join, and you can jump into active conversations with awesome people about collecting, conventions, movies, new comics, old comics, and more. Uh, Dan, what's actually been going on in the Slack this week? Mark, I did see you in there briefly this week because I was briefly in there this week because I've been very sick. Uh, So I've been kind of off of social media generally. But uh, man, this week in the Slack, there was a lot of buzz. I remember there's like a 400 comments long chain about this exciting announcement that Jonathan Hickman and Marco Cicchetto uh, are the creative team behind the new relaunch of Ultimate Spider-Man. Marco Cicchetto, fresh off of a like award-winning Daredevil run, and Jonathan Hickman obviously just completely revamped the X-Men and has led that line to great success. I think his powers uh, are House of X and Powers of Ten are amazing books. What do you what do you think about this, Mark? Because I, I think it's been very publicly known that Jonathan Hickman is one of these guys that said like, ah, I'm not really interested in writing Spider-Man. And yet here he goes. He's relaunching the ultimate universe. I happen to think ultimate invasion is a huge dud, a rare dud from Jonathan Hickman. So it kind of chills me on this, but I- I'm curious to hear your impression. Well, I, so I, I got to start by saying I'm about two, uh, two issues into ultimate invasion. So like I, granted, if I, what I'm saying doesn't make sense in the context of what has since followed. I apologize to our listeners, but I, I my first my first response to the news was like, wait, wh- how are they? What is Ultimate Spider-Man going to be in this status quo? I mean, like you know, we whatever. Like you know, I, I kind of like the mantle was handled handed to Miles. Miles is in the mainstream universe now. What else do we have in an Ultimate Universe now with Spider-Man? Uh, I know that Ultimate Peter still exists, but it it felt like his story was done. You know, no spoilers or whatever, but that's just my first instinct. But then, yeah, I mean, like, Hickman is one of those guys, uh, creatively, where I'm like, I, I know he's a genius, but when I read his stuff, it's like, oh man, like, let me, let me bring my worksheets with me. You know, if I'm being real, I don't always like having to do that much work to read a comic book. Comics are are something I typically read like on the subway or on the train or while I'm relaxing on a Sunday afternoon after a run. I I really don't feel like bringing a crib sheet with me to to read and and enjoy and comprehend a comic. And, you know, Hickman himself, like you said, has talked about not really seeing himself as a Spider-Man writer. I don't see him as a Spider-Man writer. I will check this out because I am the sucker that Marvel has a picture of when it comes to releasing new comic books with Spider-Man in it. But I I am highly skeptical about what my long-term enjoyment of this series would be. I'm thrilled for Chichetto just because that guy did some awesome stuff in Brand New Day and you know, I think Daredevil really finally put him in like the A-lister spot that he's kind of long deserved to be in. I, I think his work on that run is tremendous. And I'm like you, like Hickman is real hit and miss for me. But what he always is is a lot of work to read. And uh, Ultimate Invasion 4 is one of those books. It, I read it and reread it and I don't think I'm any closer to understanding it. But what I do understand is that this isn't even the Ultimate Universe. 
So I don't really understand what we're doing here, and maybe that will become more clear to me. It is cool that Marvel is putting so much faith in something like this. Like Jonathan Hickman is like a, it's a he's like the, probably the biggest writer at Marvel, short of like Al Ewing or like Chip Zdarsky. And to give to like have him take on this book must mean that it's a really unique take on it. And so whatever it is will be interesting, whether it's the right fit or for Spider-Man or not. We'll leave the Slack to hack that out. Um, so if you want to come join in the discussion with us on the Slack about this topic and many more, come check out the, the amazing Spider Slack. There's a link in the description to this episode. You click on it, you can sign up in less than a minute, hop on in, meet our really fun, friendly community of Spider Nerds to talk about all this nonsense and more. You'll find every opinion under the sun, but what you'll find most of all is a welcoming place to have whatever you feel like expressed and not thrown back in your face. Anyway, speaking of throwing things back in your face, let's get back into this comic and talk about Kraju and the Red Goblin. You know, that's kind of the other, or not the Red Goblin, the Queen Goblin, which is the the kind of other major relationship that's at the heart of, of this story. What did you think about this kind of intersecting Kraju elements that pop into and out of this chapter. Well, well, Dan, I want to start by saying you, 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 you jumped on my transition, which was going to be speaking of easy to comprehend. Let's talk about Kraju and uh, Queen Goblin and, and, and their status quo. I made the crack about it during the synopsis. I mean, it's not like we've been that far removed from the last appearance of Queen Goblin here, but like, it did strike me as odd that like we were completely, you know, like in the way that this issue was like very cognizant of checking in on all of the main pieces involved with this arc. Uh, last issue, for as much as we loved it, was you know, like Queen Goblin was nary to be found in it. And and so like when she she showed up back up in it and, you know, in such a impactful way in terms of kind of driving the, the conclusion here of of this of this uh comic i was just like oh right so she still matters i'm still having I, I gotta be honest i'm still having a hard time figuring out what exactly her character is because like you know some of the dialogue here in terms of her talking about like you know what is what is Spider-Man's legacy here to be doing this? It, it 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 doesn't feel like her, or at least the her that we had in the first few storylines that she was a part of. I don't know. Again, it, it kind of left me cold because I'm I'm I, I still don't quite understand what the Ashley Kafka or clone of Ashley Kafka or whatever this character is supposed to be is is really about here. The the way this whole comic wraps up with kind of like the inversion of you know, Queen Goblin with Spider-Man and, and Craven and Norman was was very interesting and sets up for a good finale. It, it, it's it's kind of hard to get too invested when I don't quite understand what the character is about just yet. I don't think they've done a good job really painting that picture. I, I agree with all of that about Queen Goblin. I mean, there's something here about her destroying a bunch of mirrors and stuff like that. And I find that intriguing in that, like, it seems to me like she thought she was done with this by, you know, giving the sins to someone else, and yet she still retains this goblin visage 
maybe some of the madness. Uh, I'm, I'm not quite sure. Like maybe she feels like she says here that their 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 spell or whatever their sacrifice went wrong. You know, clearly it di- it didn't work the way they wanted it to. But I don't know whether to believe that or not. Like, a- am I thinking that beyond maybe messed with her and turned her into this red person separate from the sins? Like it was my understanding it was completely the sins that turned her into this goblin. So why does it work differently with Peter? Is it his spider DNA? The fact that she brings it up, that something has gone wrong, gives me hope that they're going to address it in some way and 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 spell out why, why this is all working this way. But it is hard, like, retroactively to invest understanding in it so that you can understand her motivations. I mean, it's, it's an incredibly, you know, awesome-looking image we get of her here on her throne and all the shattered mirrors and stuff like that. But you're, you're right. Like, I, I, I don't know how this character works or how the magic around the Sin Eater stuff works. And so it definitely sets me at a remove from the, you know, the stakes of, uh, uh, for this character. Um, let's get to the end of, of the issue before we talk about the art. I thought it was really cool to see that inversion that you described. The Kafka thing, I think my read on it is that she is really realizing that without Norman Sin, she's still not a good person. And that she doesn't actually care about Craven. It was just a means to an end. And that she remains only interested in conquest. And Spider-Man is the new biggest villain to that. And that like she's going to destroy him to write write destiny with her at the top. But that could be a 100% wrong reading of, of that. I don't know if that seems right to you at all. I'm um, I, I think you're 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 right with that. I mean, but uh, but if, if if I may, I mean, that the, the thing I want to talk about regarding that ending is, is kind of Norman's role in all this, because we, we, we've kind of seen a variation of this to some degree for several storylines now where like Norman kind of I, I, I don't want to say he's like a white knight here per se, but like, you know, he's he's kind of coming in, you know, he's he's pulling Craven out of the grave you know, presumably because, you know, he sees this as a way to to how we how are we going to fix Peter? I got to get Craven out. You know what I mean? That, you know, like to 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 make this right. We've been seeing this for a while now. And like this storyline, this storyline specifically is kind of tap dancing around what I think is going to be the inevitable conclusion to the Peter Norman storyline, which is that. You know, and I don't think this is a major shot in the dark here to think this is how it's going to wrap. But like, I think, you know, Norman is ultimately going to sacrifice his sanity uh, for Peter and go back to being the goblin. I mean, like, that's where this is inevitably building. Am I do I do you feel that's an off base conclusion, Dan? The only reason I would push back against that is because Wells has been known to go the opposite direction from where we all think. And Nick Lowe keeps touting that about him in the letters page. Like the reason he brought him on the book is because he zigs when you think he's going to zag, you know, but, 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 but you're right. That's a hundred percent where it's going. Well, well, in fine, but in either way, my, my, the next point I'm going to make still stands, which is that I, I have, I am getting to the point with how we're treating Norman here. Where like, I, I feel like we need to actually get, what are the stakes of him sticking his neck out for Peter? Because we don't really have them yet. 
You know what I mean? It's just like, you know, oh, because he's a good friend and wants to be a friend. I like I need more than that now. You know what I mean? Like, like, what is what is the risk to norm? Like, like this is this ending is being portrayed as like this like major I, I I felt it was portrayed as like this major kind of like oh man Norman Norman means business he's going he's going to Craven who was gonna you know stab him with the spear and screw him over because he feels like this is the only way to do it and yet like at the same time I don't feel the true stakes have been gamed out in a way for the readers where it's like okay but but so what what's this you know so why why are we doing this why does he feel that he has to do this that's that is the missing link to a lot of the the Norman Peter stuff for me right now. I'm like, okay, we we we've seen this beat in different ways for a while now. You know, kind of Peter come Norman coming in to save Peter from Doc Ock, from the Hobgoblin, from the Vulture. But why and 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 at what cost? Um, and I, I like at some point we need to know what the cost is, even if there is a zig or a zag. You know what I mean? Like, what is the cost here? It's not being laid out clearly enough, in my opinion. So I, I, I just needed to put that out there. That's that's a major flaw for me in kind of where we're leading to in this storyline. Well, you know, I, 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 I agree with the elements of what you're saying. I do think that a lot of it is there, but I think it could be reinforced stronger. Um, like, I think about the issue, um, was it nine of, of this run, where they were haunted by the ghost of, of Gwen Stacy and the gold goblin books where she's following Norman around and he's haunted by his guilt for that. And, you know, that's enough. Like, I think the history of who Norman is and what he's done is enough for me to know the weight of his actions. Like when they end the book and say, we need to write destiny. I know exactly what they're talking about. You know, like, I don't think they need to spell it out necessarily. You and I both agreed. Like, the weight of death, like the correction of destiny is Norman needs to become the goblin again because those sins in Peter is even worse than what Norman is. And Norman is the only one who deserves to pay. He needs to address his own sins, right? That's where I suspect this is going is like a grand sacrifice where Norman atones for his sins in some way, or at least makes it so other people aren't suffering any longer for his own choice, you know, his own choices, no matter how much they were influenced by the goblin serum. But this is clearly couched not as the, what the goblin serum is doing, but what his sins are doing, right? Because Norman got injected with the goblin serum again, and it didn't mess him up like this. He's, he, you know, he's just, and maybe that's what all those things have been all this time is him crunching the phone, him beating the hobgoblin up in such a vicious way is like that violent guy is still there, but it's the, he, he's not keen on re, you know, uh, like, you know, acclimating all of these sins, you know, that like drive him to be so angry and vengeful, which we're seeing Peter do. I, I get what you're saying, but for me it works because I'm like, I know who the goblin is <laughs> like, you know, like, and I know all the horrible things that he's done, you know, and I know that like, it was noble of Peter to take that on him, but now it's beginning to affect all of the people in Peter's life in ways that aren't fair. You know, specifically, I guess, like Paul and MJ. I guess, I guess for me, it's, I need to, you know, I don't need to be so literal, but like, I think that I need to see Norman plainly acknowledge at what cost he has to, you know, 
change things for Peter beyond just kind of showing up in the nick of time, it seems seemingly every time for me to for this for this trope, if you will, to be truly effective for me, because like I, I, I like without that, without that acknowledgement, without without understanding what the cost is, I feel like we could just keep playing this out story after story after story after story and it's, and, and and i think each each iteration it loses its effectiveness you do, know? Like, do you I mean like it, do you mean like the cost to like norman to have to like do all that like it's against his very nature to be so altruistic and you know and and to hold those feelings at bay yeah i think that's part of it i i i i think it's a lot of different things when i say the cost i just like 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 what are the consequences you know what i mean like like this is these are being depicted as as these grand unexpected gestures from osborne and you know this whole status quo is so controversial i like it i gotta be honest i i i have felt like i i i frankly still feel elements of it have been underutilized and maybe and maybe this is part of that maybe this maybe it's like i i, I want to see more complexity to it than just well norman's a good guy now it's it's not it can't be that simple you know what i mean like 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 let's let's start adding some layers to that explain some of the consequences involved to norman explain what's at risk for him why he's doing this how he's doing this what's going to happen if he does this and with the wrong people, you know what I mean? Like, like, you know, like, like how, how real is him going back truly? You know what I mean? Like, I, I, like, it's just like, okay, they got a spear that they're going to stab him with that has the sins in it. Like this is the, the, I think that is the most tangible, like Norman is going back representation that we've had so far in this comic since they've started the storyline. So it's just like, I feel like we're setting up an end game here, but like they're being coy about it and I get that. But then like, I don't know, like I, I, I just want more complexity to this than what we've been getting. And cause I feel like it's starting to get a little tired in terms of how they keep moving in this direction and then going, ah, nope, not yet. You know, like, I don't know. So, well, I think it gets back to like, uh, you know, between Nick Spencer and, and Zeb Wells, both of them have been not keen on defining how this works. I mean, even from the the beginning, Nick Spencer, you know, had the sin eater do this whole thing. And there was a switch out where we thought Norman betrayed them in the layer of kindred. If you can remember back that far and that like MJ had died and all this stuff. And it was all a switch out because we didn't really like we, we were told all of a sudden not to believe that the Sin Eater had removed the goblin. And yet it ended up being that. No, in fact, you should believe it. Norman is altruistic. So it's like kind of playing with the with that. But nobody ever stopped to really define what happened there. Like, I mean, there's you're, like you said, there's so much interesting stuff to get into of like. Okay, you remove the sins. What does that mean? Like, how much of Norman Osborne's actions were Norman's? How much of them were the Goblins? If the sins are to be believed to be the Goblin, which I guess they are, going against what I previously just said, like we see the Goblin in form in this issue in multiple places. You know, Gleason has the specter of the Green Goblin like over Peter when he's beating up Norman or after he unplugs tombstone, he Gleason draws that really cool full page splash of Peter swinging away in the night and his web line forms the outline of the face of the green goblin. And 
like that's super cool like to make his like web covers appear in the pages of the comic I like that I thought that was really rad yeah I mean so it's like okay it's the Green Goblin now in Spider-Man it's all very wishy-washy and it's not there's not a lot to hang your hat on at the end of the day all right. Well, do you, do you want to talk about the art team on this and some of the production stuff with the comic? Yeah. Before I get into the positives, because again, I think this is a very another like strong art issue. I don't know if this was true with you, Mark. Recently, there's been a ton of serious print issues in my Spider-Man comics. I, I only buy mostly Spider-Man books, so it's hard to really say how widespread this is in Marvel's line. But definitely an amazing Spider-Man. This issue, all of my like the font was like faded in in various places. And this was true for a bunch of people in the Slack. All of my variant copies, as I flipped through the variants that I picked up, because again, there's some really cool covers for this particular issue. Did you experience this in your book? I don't think so. I I, I, I mean, we we know that I'm sometimes a visual idiot when it comes to reading you comics. Would de- you would definitely have noticed because yeah, I, it's like I real faded. Notice- yeah, I didn't notice anything like that for sure. So maybe, maybe, maybe it was a West Coast thing. That's or, the thing. Uh, <laughs> I wonder. I wonder if this is regional or whatnot. But um, it's the most inconsistent printing quality. Like you know, Alex, Alex, our video editor, was showing, and I'm sure if you're watching the video version, he'll throw up a version of it here. He was showing me that in one of his books, the balloons were like double printed just off from each other and so you could see kind of a secondary outline and I've never really seen that kind of stuff in Marvel Comics and I wonder if like going you know outside of Diamond or maybe they change printers there are some some issues because like Alex is on the East Coast and I'm on the West Coast so it sounds like there's some inconsistencies going on in the printing of these books and I just wanted to point that out like I'm curious if you if you're experiencing this let us know in the slack I am genuinely curious how widespread this is. Um, and maybe Marvel Marvel needs to know that there is something going on with the printing of, of their books. So anyway, that, that has nothing to do with the artists who put this together, who did a wonderful job. It is odd. Like I would expect like printing stuff to come, you know, all across the book, but it's only the letters. So, well, well, 30 years from now, there goes your CGC 9.8 on this. Right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I think stuff like that skirts by CGC because it's considered a print error rather than like any kind of damage done to the book. But anyway, what did you think about Gleason's work in this book? I know the last issue we said it was like one of the most stunning issues of Spider-Man we've seen in a long time. Did this book keep that momentum going? It's an attractive book for sure, but like it, it's it's funny. I you know it, in the way that the storyline I feel lacks subtlety. I felt parts of the art lack subtlety too. I mean, like I don't. I, I'm not going to ding him for like the the sheer violence of like you know the scenes with like you know him punching out Norman and you know throwing spiders at MJ and Paul because you know like we. I, I frankly enjoyed that when Ramita was doing it with like the tombstone arc back in the day, uh, you know, so it's not that, but like, you know, like there was that scene that, you know, and I mocked it a little bit in, in the, in the recap with like, you know, like he's got like, he's got like the bat bat wings, you know? And I'm just like, all right, this, this feels a little over the top. I, you know what I mean? Like, like, like where, you know, like I'm like in the background going, do, 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 you know? Oh, sorry. Don't, don't sue me for using the theme song from. No, but but you're not kidding because it's, it's exactly the same shot from like the Batman or the dark Knight movie where like the Batmobile is coming and like 
are like all the cars are flipping in the background. You know, it, it's a very similar visual yeah, concept. Yeah. yeah. And I and I, I, I do realize after the fact I said the Tim Burton theme, I meant the Danny Elfman theme, hence like the which one, because I know Danny Elfman also did the Raimi Spider-Man movies. Mm. Anyway, I digress. Point being is like in the same it, it the art was good, but it also lacked subtlety in spots. So like it, sometimes it was just a little too goofy, but then like Gleason would then hit you with an image that you were just like, oh, that's good. You know what I mean? Like, oh, that's the stuff. Give me more of that. You know what I mean? Like, I mean, Gleason's great. I mean, like, I'm dinging him here, but I'm dinging him because I'm just trying to be a good critic. But like, I I think, I mean, this is still a visually very strong issue with Spider-Man. I I loved seeing Spider-Man with like an evil version of Bug at the end, because that's what it is. It's Bug on his back, but with his spider legs extended and he seems to have like, put like some black cloth over it. So like uh, to me, that was neat. And the bombs are just like the same spider bombs he had earlier in, in the run. And it's like, Oh, how quickly this can be turned from a, a, a weapon for good into a weapon for evil um, by just painting it black, so to speak. But um, yeah, I mean, it, it kind of comes out of nowhere. Uh, I, I thought that was really visually spectacular The you talked about the twisted smile of Peter, I thought that was a great image, you know, just him with pulling his mask up to show his like, you know, smile off to Norman. I, I mean, this is a visually strong book, you know, it, it is showy, like the outline of the Green Goblin in webbing as Spider-Man swings across the page is not subtle in any way, but I won't begrudge a guy doing something as cool as that uh, on, on the page. You know, I, I feel like swing for the fences, dude. Like, <laughs> I, I, I don't know that I want to pull him back. I do think there are some visually confusing uh, parts of the book. Um, I liked the kind of very claustrophobic Craven stuff and how it opens up at the, by the end of the book, I think was really, really cool. But there is one panel where Spider-Man gets knocked off the glider or off of Bug by the Queen Goblin. And you're not supposed to know who did it, but it's it's crushed into such a small frame that it looks like it could be anybody that like fell off of something, much less the like villainous, sinister Spider-Man. And that like transition felt really awkward to me. I was like, wait a minute, did he fall? How did that work? But I mean, the glowing spear piercing the ground that Craven is reaching up towards in a mimicry of like Spider-Man crawling towards the light in Craven's last hunt. I mean, there's just so much cool stuff in this. I, I, I hats off to the whole team, even if it's not the like blockbuster of the previous issue, you know, I, I still think like th- th- this is continuing like a, a, a like a like show stopping, you know, series of, of issues from Gleason. So for sure. All right. Do we want to, do we want to do some grades here? Yeah, sure. Um, I'm going to give this one a B plus. Okay. I, I'm, not quite where you are with it. I'm giving it a B minus. I, I, I'm going to kind of explain this by saying like B minus to me is still a good grade for a issue with Spider-Man, but it does feel like a fall off because we thought it was, a, I gave the last one an A and I, I stand by that A, but like, that's the thing. It's like, 
I didn't dislike this. I think this was still a good issue of Spider-Man. I enjoyed reading it, but it just like, I, you know, it, it felt like, to me, it felt like a significant fall off from the last one. But like, I think, I think you're in a good place in, as a creative tandem. If like a significant fall off is still a B minus. So, so that's, that's, that's how I'm going to explain it away. <laughs> yeah. And I, I'm hoping that like the next issue like has with the ending of this one and the split page of it has really divided us into like two storylines instead of like the four that we got here and that we're going to just continue to see those things dovetail uh, over the next two issues to conclude this story. So anyway, I, I, I'm really excited about it, hoping for a, a great finale, which I guess is eternal hope here on the show where we almost never get great finales. But yeah, Mark, why don't you take us home? Of course. Well, it is that time, time for all good things to come to an end. So we want to say thank you to you, the listeners and viewers, for tuning in to this episode of The Amazing Spider Talk. Yeah, this podcast exists because of listener support on Patreon. For only $3.99 a month, you can help support our show's existence while getting early episodes, including these reviews the same week the comics release, exclusive artwork, and a ton of other bonuses. A thank you to everyone as well who already supports us in the work that we do, but a special thanks to our newest contributors, Jeff Cole, Ryan Downs, Christopher Nyland, and Alex Marks. To download our earliest episodes, including interviews with legendary creators like J.M. Demetrius, Tom DeFalco, Ron Friends, Mark Bagley, David Michelinie, and many more, subscribe to our amazing Spider Talk Back Issues podcast on Apple Podcasts. Dan, I was going through the archives of our podcast the other day and realized one of our Back Issue uh, podcast interviews is with Jason Latour and Robbie Rodriguez uh, from nine years ago, a.k.a. you having to edit a barking dog out of a podcast. So, like, go to Back Issues to hear that ish, that episode for no other reason than hear Dan's magnificent editing job. <laughs> that was a great episode because, I mean, I don't know if it makes any sense today, but as a time capsule, that was the night after the first Spider-Gwen comic released, I believe. And like, they did not know if that character was going to have any future and we didn't either. And so there's just like kind of weird speculation about her future and knowing that she's now the like, I just got a, like a text from my mother-in-law that my niece is dressing up as Spider-Gwen for, for Halloween and like, what a weird world we live in. Uh, that that's a sentence I can say. Looking back those many years later on that interview, yeah. So, anyway, that's a that's a fun one to go check out. And uh, all the stuff in the back issues is fun time capsules and good interviews and more thoughts on classic comics from Mark and myself. But anyway, and barking dogs and barking dogs. Yeah, I and mean, barking you know. dogs. Uh, uh, in Robbie Rodriguez's case, um, and and lots of cursing. That that was the other thing. But anyway, this podcast episode was edited by Rick Coast, who has taken over the duties from me. Uh, the video version of this show is available on YouTube and was edited by Alex Galucky. Our artwork comes handcrafted by artists Ron Friends, Sal Buscema, and Nick Cagnetti. Our theme songs were produced by Ryland Bojack, Tony Thaxton, and Spider Madge. And our animated intro was created and performed by Josh Sutton. So, Mark, until Paul confirms whether his intention was to take the George Washington or Brooklyn Bridge to flee Manhattan, what's our motto? With great podcasts, there must also come the amazing spider talk.